So the use case real quick is if you're a purchasing manager at a dispensary, typically you would text email phone call 30 to 50 brands every week or so to stock your shelves. Now you can go on LeafLink, create a multi-brand cart, hit submit, and then those invoices get sent out to all those brands. And then they have SaaS tools which help them then manage the life cycle of the order internally all the way through to delivery. confident about going through these processes, but a lot of it is like being comfortable, being uncomfortable, knowing you don't know. Those phrases that are too often used, but it's true. So if you think you have it figured out, you're probably not gonna, people don't wanna deal with people like that. And usually people don't have it figured out. Everyone's just like an old baby, pretty much like an old child, you know? And people that try to pretend like they're more than that, it's like. All right, everybody, welcome to Hacker Noob's non-technical founder podcast. This is episode two. Can't think of a better founder to talk to than Ryan Smith. Ryan, prior to co-founding LeafLink, had successfully founded and exited two companies, one of which he sold to a NYSE public firm. Ryan brings his experience creating and managing B2B firms and online marketplace investing in a highly regulated space to LeafLink as their CEO. LeafLink, the cannabis industry standard platform for orders, sales, and relationship management, has raised $16 million in investor capital. The platform went live in Colorado in March 2016 and now has more than 3,000 retailers placing orders for over 1,000 brands across 21 territories in the U.S. It's always growing in Canada. In 2016, Ryan was the first CEO of a cannabis-facing company to be listed on Forbes 30 Under 30 list. In February 2018, LeafLink was the first company in the cannabis space to make Fast Company's 2018 list of top 10 most innovative companies in enterprise. That's a mouthful and amazing. Hacker Noon, an independent tech media destination for tech professionals and the tech interested, released its new publishing platform at hackernoon.com. Anyone can now visit hackernoon.com, start writing, and have their post reviewed and improved by a professional editor for distribution via Hacker Noon. Head over to hackernoon.com, resist the urge to dive into all the great content, then click Get Started to create a free account and start writing. You're just a few clicks away from becoming a contributing author. See you soon at hackernoon.com. Thanks for joining, Ryan. Sure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> sure. No worries. Um, so before we get into your childhood and kind of what brought you up to LeafLink, we both became friends through Brett Harwood. Um, and I think starting with Brett is a, a great way to start. So Brett is my business partner. Before that, he was a friend and mentor. How did you and Brett meet? So Brett and I connected through my sister. So my sister graduated from Franklin Marshall. Uh, college and I met Brett at the one of the tents. As you know, he's very you know open to speaking to anyone and everyone about anything. Right. Uh, so we connected at that graduation ceremony, kept in touch, and like similarly to you as a mentor, would bounce ideas off of him well before we started LeafLink, and uh, that's how the relationship started. Interesting. And then he became one of the initial investors in LeafLink, right? Yeah, I think he may be the only investor that's invested in every single round. Might be one or two others, but it's that he is definitely that. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So you grew up in New York. I'm trying to imagine this because I actually don't have any friends that grew up in this city. So growing up in New York, do you live in like a house? Do you live in an apartment? What's that look like? Grew up in an apartment on the, the 23rd floor. The only outside space was like the terraces. Um I didn't actually know anyone that didn't grow up in the city until college. So this, yeah. I like smile at this question because people always ask like, what was that like growing up in the city? And I'm like, it was, what was it like to not grow up? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, I think it was, you know, definitely like a very important part of my childhood and tons of exposure being in the city um, that I'm really grateful for looking back on now. And I can't really imagine it any other way. Yeah, that's crazy. So your parents are in commercial real estate now, at least. Were they in commercial real estate as you were growing up as well? Were both of them working? Yep, they were working. They're actually both entrepreneurs as well. My mom is the CEO of the company they founded. My dad's the president. Uh, and so they always would bring work home. I mean, at the dining room table talking about deals they were doing, problems they were running into. Uh, and their company just had its 30th anniversary wow. as well. So they started that um, 25th anniversary. So they started that when I was like, you know, three years old. Amazing. So then like, obviously you're learning from them just being surrounded by all of this, but I remember hearing stories where you've, you were kind of entrepreneurial on your own as well. What's like your earliest hustle memory of when you started to, to do your own entrepreneurial things? So, so in, in, um, so in our building, there were like 400 different units right? Apartments, mm -hmm. uh, three or 400. And so I remember being in probably like first or second grade and I would put up uh, ads in the mailroom that I would like walk people's dogs or take care of their plants or like who wanted to pretty much like if you needed someone to do something, whatever it was. <laughs> I did it. And I built a nice little like after school, I'd come home, I'd walk a bunch of dogs, I'd clean up a bunch of you know houses or people went away on vacations. I'd you know water their plants. Um, and then probably around that time too, I remember getting in trouble at my grammar school, I went to a Catholic grammar school because I would sneak candy in. I remember like the numbers, you could buy like those like bubblicious 75 cent packs yeah. and I could sell them for like a dollar or dollar 25. And I was like, Oh my God, this is the coolest. So I used to that we had these like blazers in the uniform and I'd fill it full of candy and sell it to kids <laughs> at lunch. And I remember once a nun, a nun yelling at us, yelling at me because I was like divvying up cash in second grade at lunch. Wow. Cause my friends are helping me now. It was like, you know, let's get this little thing going. So, so were you the middleman? Like you would, you'd buy it for 75 cents, sell it to your friends for a dollar, but then they could make an extra 25 cents on each popper. Yeah. It was something, well, something I would bring everything cause we can only each hold so much. Uh -huh. So we would pool it all in the buy and the sell and then kind of <laughs> split evenly after that. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. Okay. So you're very generous early on. And then with, with these ads that you were doing in your parents' apartment complex, was it like handwritten by you or was it printed out? Oh, it's like, it was straight off of like a, a white gateway machine and the printer. And um, yeah, it was like in paint, you know, probably didn't even have word like in right. paint. I would, you know, draw it out and print it up and yeah, it had to look professional. So. That's awesome. Yeah, I can imagine these people are like, oh, this is great. Like, there's a dog walker in our building. This is perfect. And then they see, like, oh, like first grader pop up at their door and they're like, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after a while, and the funny part is actually that some of the people whose dogs we walked actually participated in Leaf Link's Angel Round. Um, no way. Which is pretty funny. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a theme here, and I, I'm going to hit on it eventually, but it, it's really cool, kind of like, how you started so early with some of these things and people saw something in you and it lasted. Right. But, um, okay. So amazing. So you're doing all this stuff in grade school, go to this Catholic grade school. I had never heard about St. Regis until I was look until I was looking in your history. It's a remarkable school. So to go off some statistics that I got, um, from online, my high school. <laughs> no, it's great. So it's the only, yeah, free go, go for it. Yeah. yeah. It's the only free private all scholarship school in the United States, 
right? So there's more I want to say about it, but how did you get in? Was it, you just had good grades and you got in or? So, uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much, it's, a, it's all, it's an academic scholarship school. So, um, it was founded like a, about a hundred years ago from this, it was actually a female founder, foundress, and she was always anonymous up until recently, but she gave like a $7 million check to her local priest at a church in 84th and park. Um, and that endowed the school for, you know, the next hundred years, but uh-huh. I went to grammar school across the street. So it's, it's definitely a top high school in the country, you know, very unique in the city as well, but I could always see it outside the, outside of the classroom windows from my grammar school. Cause it was across the street. Mm-hmm. So it was like a constant reminder, like that's, that's the next step. I'm a very visual person. Like that's where I want to be. Um, and I can remember like getting accepted to that was like, definitely, it was, it was a bigger deal than college. It was, it was like a, it was a huge deal. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So I, I ended up giving them a call to learn more because there's only so much information online, right? It's like they only wow. take males. You have to be a Catholic. Um, but so there's over 50 different countries represented at this school and over 40% of the kids there are immigrants. So it's amazing how, how far of an outreach it has. And I guess high schoolers will commute up to two hours um, back and forth to go to the school. Yeah, there are uh, people living up in like New Canaan commuting in. It was ridiculous to, to Manhattan. Which is yeah. like a two-hour drive, yeah. Crazy feet. Your coach uh, Eric DiMichele says hi. By the way. Oh, you spoke to Di Michele? Yeah. <laughs> Di wow, Michele. You did, wow, you did crazy research. That's. <laughs> oh my god, Patrick, this, oh, this is so serious. Wow. This okay. is this is serious, Ryan. Right? Yeah. I needed to be like, is this guy Ryan, my friend, legit? That is hilarious. I just had my yeah. ten-year high school anniversary last weekend, or like reunion last weekend. That's cool. Yeah, dude, he's proud of you. I'm sure they all are. Okay, so you go to this awesome high school. How do you choose Colgate out of all the different colleges? I knew I was going to be back in the city, uh, growing up in the city. And so I thought, like, what would be a very different experience from that? So, like, a small school in the middle of nowhere fit the bill. Um, And, yeah, there's, like, culture just seemed to be a fit. It's one of those, like, I make a lot of decisions sometimes on gut feeling. And I remember going on a tour there, it just seemed like a – good group to be within and um yeah had a great experience up 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 at colgate and then you know like i said and back in the city after awesome makes sense um so did you know that you were going to be an entrepreneur and you just wanted to go to a college or what were you thinking at the time that you applied to colgate so when when i was like talking about looking out the window and seeing regis i remember Mm -hmm. that there was a that wasn't where the progression ended growing up in the city the progression was like it was this binary it was like go to, go to Regis, go to a great college, work at, you know, Goldman Sachs, happy life. Like that to me was like the very clear, like city kid, this is what people do. Interesting. Uh, and so I think I was probably, which that was probably the thought, but in, in tandem, I was doing all these other things. I mean, I was like buying and selling things online. I've had an eBay account since like probably sixth grade, you know, like, so I was always doing these things and I never thought like, Oh, that's something you can do all the time. Mm-hmm. That could be your life. It yeah. was more like, that's just something I enjoy doing and you know, got to do this other thing during the day, but then kind of came to the realization that it could be one and the same. Greetings hackers. We at hacker noon are continually thinking of ways of showing our appreciation for you, our community enter the noonies. The tech industry's greenest awards. Cast your vote in Hacker Noon's first annual Noonies at noonies.hackernoon.com, where everything's democratic and your votes are the only things that matter. 
Voting closes on August 16th and winners will be announced on August 20th. Vote for Hacker of the Year, Most Exciting Startup, Contributing Writer of the Year in every major category. The list goes on at noonies.hackernoon.com. Stay tuned to noonies.hackernoon.com for the results. And remember, you are Hacker Noon. And then you joined a fraternity at some point. Um, did that kind of change how you felt about it? You started to meet more people that way as well? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's a weird dynamic up there because they don't do fraternities freshman year. So, so as a freshman year guy, you're not allowed to go to the fraternities, mm. but all the girls are. And so weird. it's this weird dynamic. And then, and then obviously sophomore year, you're like welcomed into the fraternities and you're the coolest thing on the planet. And like, that's fine. That was fun. I was the social chair. Actually, thinking about like the little projects, I was the social chair. I was the first person to create a pro forma for our slush fund. Um, and I enjoyed all that stuff. That was, that was <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And then at some point during school, you created a company called EcoCampus. Where did that idea come from? And did you start it by yourself with other people? So I had a partner in that my freshman year, um, a girl uh, at the time that I was very close with uh, saw an email go around, like some of those emails that everyone usually ignores. And it was pitching this entrepreneurial class. It was like a no credit it wasn't even a class. It was like, you'd spend all of Saturday with two or three alums that would come in and they'd coach you on how to build a business. And my girlfriend at the time, she was like, you know, you should look at this. All you do is talk about all these ideas you have. Like you should, this is like perfect. And so I, I, I just had to think of, I remember one weekend I was like, I had to come up with an idea to get into this class. Mm. And so like you think about how immature some ideas are just like, you know, being a freshman in college, I was like, what do schools need paper? Like what are people obsessed with sustainability? Colgate had just made this initiative by 2020 to be carbon neutral. So I was like, uh -huh. perfect. I'll find like tree free paper and sell it to the university. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's how that program got started or that's how I got involved in that program. Amazing. And then, so where did you find the partner? Did they pair you with somebody in the class or was it one of your buddies? It was one of my buddies. It was like okay. out, of, out of a, out of a white paper on, you know, work, don't work with friends and family kind of thing. Right. Um, right we're still, we're still friendly and everything, but, uh, but that was how it kicked off. Yeah. Okay. And that was, Got it. That, that's what the company was over the next like three, four years. I mean, up until senior year or like junior year at the fraternity, my, my dorm, my room was a single room had like reams of paper up to the ceiling, total fire hazard. And like, we had a shed in the back that I was using also like full of reams. And so I was like <laughs> shuttling paper around in, in my car. Um, people would sometimes they'd get a text like Ryan, there's a, an 18 wheeler at the house. It's unloading reams. What the hell? Amazing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and then we were able to sell that company to a few other students. We created this first concept, like a legacy business. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more just to like get experience running, you know, managing inventory, doing sales, running a company. It was nothing mm -hmm. significant, um, yeah. but it was a good experience to have like at that, at that point. Put yeah. That's on. huge. And it, it's fun. Yeah. It's just fun to learn all these things. So you sold it to friends. It wasn't anything like substantial. It wasn't a huge exit, but it, it was, it was like an 20, exit. Yeah, it's like, like 25 grand or something small. Yeah. Okay. But still amazing for college students. Yeah. And okay, cool. Did you guys need any technology or anything for it? Or it was mostly. We, we had like an ordering, like a Wix ordering page, but it wasn't nothing, nothing really like technological in the way we think of, you know, what we're building here at LeafLink. Got it. 
Um, and then was Andy Greenfield one of the the mentors or alumni that was part of this group, or how did you guys end up meeting? So he was the one that started that program that I mentioned that I wanted to get into. Awesome. And so I met him my freshman year of college, and that was where like our relationship started there. Okay. And I didn't write down my notes on Andy, but like, what's Andy's background? I know he's very legit. He exited out of numerous companies, I think one to a publicly traded company as well. Yeah. So he started one of the first online survey companies um, that sold in like the late nineties to Microsoft. Um, And he's been doing like a lot of investing and mentoring, like philanthropy stuff since then. Mm -hmm. Um, there's on a bunch of boards. He's on the board of Colgate and a few, like a number of other companies, but just all around like humble, accomplished guy gets it always like pushes at the right time, supportive at the right times. So we've had a good relationship. Yeah. And so he's an investor in LeafLink as well. He's an investor in LeafLink. And then he also had another couple of partners, Bob Gold and Wills Hapworth that started a fund together. So their fund has invested in LeafLink as well. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So it's funny because as I look back and I talk to, you know, your coach at high school and you think about Eric and, or um, sorry, Andy and Brett, whenever he met you, there's Uh this thing that like people see something in you and it's, they're inspired to keep in touch um, and to, to put their money down on things that you're working on. What do you think it is? Like, what do you think that they see in you where they're like, this kid has something I want to, I want to invest my money in, in him, invest my time in him. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, I, I mean, I'm very, I'm a very direct person. So like, I'll either like you or you like me or we don't, and that's fine too. Um, I definitely like take relationships very seriously and I spend a lot of time, you know, maintaining them that same level of like transparency and accountability, I think is really important. That, like, we, even for the reporting we do on LeafLink, like on a cycle all the time, consistent, we share the good news, we share the bad news. I'm not trying to like fancy anything up. Um, and maybe honesty and like, and, and yeah, honesty and accountability. I, I take very seriously that people who work very hard for what they have can take what they have and gamble it on something that we're doing and building here. And so mm-hmm. it's like the least we can do to, you know, continue the relationships with them, support them where they support us. I mean, like, for example, some of the, some of of the funds that have have invested in LeafLink, I've gone back and invested in those funds. So we have this, like this kind of community of people helping each other out in all different ways, which I think is, is a pretty beautiful thing. It really is. Yeah. And I totally see that in you as well. The people that are very close to you, you take care of, um, you know, Emerald is our mutual assistant, but um, you know, she was just your assistant and I guess you, I don't know if you invested in her, but you ended up, um, create talking her into creating a company where she hires, hires more assistants and yeah, she has like, uh, yeah, she has a virtual assistant company and there's like six or seven people on her team now and hooked her up with like who she should talk to, to create an LLC, all that stuff. But yeah, yeah. I feel like when there's friends and family and, you know, the team that you work with and then everyone else is kind of just noise. So like you can, right. you can only do with what you have and help everyone do their thing too. Yeah. I, I truly respect that. Did you learn that from your parents? Is that the way that they are or like a grandparent or something? Yeah. There's probably elements of my mom's like old school Italian, you know, 
tribal mentality in there. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. Okay. So, uh, college is ending and at some point you have a, a brain injury. Is it a concussion? Um, and then, yeah, it was kind of a, kind of a, I guess a freak accident. So I have a, a naturally slower heartbeat. Um, and it caused me to, at times I, I, I would feign if it wasn't something that I like was paying attention to. And in this particular scenario, I fainted and hit my head pretty hard. Um, and was in the hospital for like over a week there was like bleeding between, you know, the brain and the, and the skull. Um, but it was looking back on it. I, I was mixing words up. It was, it was pretty bad. Um, but it was a good experience too, because I, I realized after that I was, it was sedated, which is why I had some of these feelings, but I actually felt like, Oh wow, that's it. Like you could just be dead. It's that, you know what I mean? And yeah. so don't though, for whatever that's, whatever that's worth, I think it made me take things a little less seriously because once you're dead it's over like who cares yeah. so why not do everything you can to do the things you want to do and help others do those things because like it doesn't really matter right at the end of the day you're you're gone so right um so yeah so i came so i when i came out of that i had one semester left of college and uh that was when i was like i was probably 80 percent sure i wanted to start a company after school and then after this, it was like, no doubt. I mean, I'm not going to waste any time doing anything I want to do. Like it has to be done now. Amazing. Wow. Okay. So that truly served you. And do you think that you would have started your own company if this didn't happen? I would have, but it probably would have taken, you know, a couple of years of me complaining at something I wasn't enjoying doing. Yeah. Uh, it comes to the realization. <laughs> but right. fortunately, my parents were really supportive. I even spoke to a couple of mentors that basically said, you know, I think I'm going to start a company after school. I said to my parents, I'm going to come live at home. Uh, what do you guys think? Like, we thought you were going to do that. Like, you should take a year and just like figure it out, you know? Mm. Uh, so that support was really important. And I would have done it eventually, just would have taken me longer, I think. Awesome. Uh, one thing I want to know, because I think it's cool as well, is after your brain injury, for whatever reason, you decided building like a scaled home set, which takes days to build. And what are these things called? Oh, there are these, there, there are these models that you can make that are like at department of buildings code. Um, like, uh, and you, you put together all like the, the beams within the walls and the structures and it's like a little house. Um, and I remember when I, in my head, I needed some speech coaching cause I would, I'd like say, I'd want to say the word door, but I'd say the word like window. It was very, very weird. Yeah. Uh, I only had to go to one of the speech coaching thing, like sessions. And the doctor said, my parents, like, and right when I came home, I was, couldn't do much. So I was just like started building this house. There's like a lot of thinking and measuring and like laying this whole thing out. There are all these like detailed plans. Um, and the doctor's like, what is he doing anything that's helping him? Like, why, like, why is he getting better so much faster? So sometimes when people have brain injuries, they just accept like, oh, this is how I now operate. Right. And I heard, like, well, he's been building this like very complex model for like the last two or three weeks. She's like, Oh my God, that, that, might, that, that could be it. Like that's a, that's a very different thing to be focused on. So mm-hmm. um, my parents actually just moved out of the house we grew up in or the apartment we grew up in. And I, and I had to take pictures of it cause they were like so sentimental about throwing it away. Right. Uh, yeah. Cause it's like this big house that like, where do you, where am I going to put that? You know? Yeah. So amazing though. And it, it's funny cause I'm, I think I read a lot more like hippie books than you read, but I'll read things about, you know, there's two people on the hippie books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there's, 
there's your mind and then there's something else that's deeper, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. But it, it's crazy because I think so many people would have had that experience and they just would have like vegged out watching like Entourage DVDs or whatever the fuck we were all watching back then. And instead, like you, I, at least that part never changed, right? There was still that hustle mentality of I'm going to get better, I'm going to get better fast and I'm going to do whatever I can. And so you build this house instead of just vegging out. Um, I, I think it says a lot. I don't know what it says, but it's cool. Cool. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm glad you think I'm so cool. I've never <laughs> thought about these things that much, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So you start Trupoli, um, you decide to go all in. How long did it come to, how long did it take to come up with that idea? Did it take a couple of months or years or? Uh, so my, my, I started second semester senior year. So I really like, right. I started doing research right after I hit my head, like almost immediately when I got back to school. Uh, and my parents are in real estate. So I was familiar with that industry. It's very old school industry. Uh, even like four or five years ago, some of these companies like, um, that started popping up for real estate tech were very popular. And so I created this concept around, uh, an investor relationship management platform, which was a tech that this was like a true tech build. So it's a way for general partners to manage limited partners in these alternative funds. Um, and that's where we started building. Yeah. When we started the Jubilee. But how do you come up like with this concept? How did you even know to create something like that? You were digging into to this world further and further and you saw this as a problem? Yeah, I would just, I just call everyone I could and then I'd get intros from them on people that I didn't know and ask more questions. And then you start to see, I feel like once you speak to enough people in a certain space, you start to hear a pattern of something that sucks right. or that could, be, that could be better. And this was, I knew I wanted to be in real estate. I knew I wanted to have something around investments and, um, and so what, that's what gave rise to Trupoli, the longer, I thought the name was really cool at the time, but, uh, uh, what the longer term plan was, if you could consolidate investments for it, virtually, then you could potentially also create investment opportunities like crowdfunded equity was a thing as well. So it's like, if you could manage and invest all in one platform in these private holdings, these real estate opportunities, you could like democratize investment long-term. And that was like the vision that I was most excited about. Like if, if you or I who couldn't afford to buy, you know, a hundred million dollar building could each put like a thousand bucks in it or whatever. Yeah. That to me was really exciting. The idea of like bringing together capital for economic empowerment of people to own the world around them. Totally. And I know people do that with residential real estate. There's a couple of companies now. Does Trupoli do something like that today? Or are there any companies out there that are so the company we sold it to wanted to go in that direction as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely had alignment there. But after I, after like the, the earnout was done, I left and in the years since they'd sold it to another company, there's a much more to that story, but it's, so it still exists under another company now, a different name. Uh, and that one does this crowdfunded equity stuff. Interesting. Very cool. Because yeah, this was before crowdfunding was really popular, or was it like right when it was starting up? Right around like when the Jobs Act passed, and people yeah. were getting really excited about. But the thing is, you wait for the SEC and FINRA to come out with new regulations, uh, and it just takes forever. Um, which actually is not too different from the cannabis space because there's it's highly regulated, but at least there, there's more clarity, there's more bureaucracy. Things take even longer. Right. So. Tripoli was a SaaS product, right? So you you had the idea, you found the problem, 
how did you end up building the solution out? Consultants. It was, it was rough. Uh, so it was, I was the only founder. Um, I was, I was at like the dining room table, uh, my parents' house on the call with consultants. So I was playing like, I'm not a developer. I'm not a project. I'm not a product manager, but I was playing that role with these consultants. Um, and they were building out this whole platform. And I basically wanted something simple enough that I could show it in pitch meetings, sign up a couple of clients. And then, you know, we, we did raise some capital and hire some full-time people to begin to really build it out. Um, but it was probably to three or four different dev shops, um, India, you know, every, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was definitely a chore. It was, it was such a rough experience that actually, I don't even know if my co-founder Zach knows this, but I think my like 2015 New Year's resolution was to find a technical co-founder because there was like no way I was going to do tech again without a technical co-founder. That's so, so lucky, funny. Lucky enough to find Zach, but yeah. And 2015 was before you started LeafLink. That was after you sold Truplee. Sold Truplee 2014 in July. Okay. Uh, left in July 2015. Uh, and then, yeah, started LeafLink. Okay. So it was, yeah, this was one of the questions is how you and Zach met, but it was definitely a goal of yours to meet Zach. Poor Zach thought it was like the stars aligning. Maybe um, we can cut it out. So he'll never. Well, so you know what, you know what, no, no, no. Well, the, the, the cool part about, I learned this like six months ago, but Zach has been like, Zach has been thinking about creating cannabis marketplace since high school. Wow. Zach is like five or six years older than me. So, so it's, I mean, Zach is definitely like this product visionary on, on the platform side. And I think a lot of that is because he's been, it's been cooking up there for like, you know, 15 years, 20 years. Amazing. So as Brett would say, Beshert meant to be. So, okay. Um, you sold, can you give any listeners like a, a range of the amounts or somewhat of an idea of what you sold for? Yeah, it wasn't, um, wasn't an insignificant amount. We had raised uh, 350K convertible note right before that um like probably like a year or so before that so all the investors were really happy with it there was like some solid return for everyone i was most pumped because it meant that i could now like seriously invest in my next thing and do it all over again and that, right. that was like that was the most important part yeah. Um, yeah and so how did you exit did you were you planning on exiting did you get it to a place where you were like okay now's a good time to sell or how did that happen no, we, it wasn't that strategic. I mean, there was a team of like five of us. Um, I was pitching the product to this fund and we were going through the deck. I probably only got a few pages in this fund. Uh, the founders there had just become incredibly successful taking uh, this company public. And we were pitching this, they had a quarter of a million investors and we were pitching it. And they said, all right, just stop. I, we have 10 questions. And the last question was, why would I pay? I think I've told you a story. Why would I pay? Why would I invest in the watchmaker if I have to pay retail price for the watch? So I was like, you should just buy the watchmaker. And they're like, <laughs> some bad word. Exactly. Send <laughs> us a awesome. number. We'll figure yeah. something out. And we did. Wow. So did you send a number that was a lot higher than you thought they would actually say yes to? Yeah. yeah. And they did I mean, say yes. Uh, no, they no, there was a negotiation. Okay. We didn't. Yeah. Um, it's a, a five-person company and we had like, you know, a handful of clients. So, yeah, cool. Okay. And then you start LeafLink. So you sold in 2014, you said, and you knew that you wanted to reinvest into a new product you created. 
Um, how long, what were you doing? Were you looking at different industries? Did you take a break before you started doing that? What, what was up in those years in between you starting Leafly? Yeah, I took like a, a nice chunk of a vacation. Um, after I left, like the day after the year was up, I, I, I resigned and then took mm-hmm. this really long vacation. Um, and I had already been, I mean, Zach and I had already known each other, been thinking about like the space. But I think the, the thing that like lines up really well with what we've created is, I mean, we were talking earlier about like I had an eBay account from a very young age. Like my parents would say things would go missing in the house and they'd probably be in Ryan's PayPal account. Right. So I've always, like, always loved B2C marketplaces. And so Zach and I began thinking on like, well, what about a B2B marketplace? And why isn't that a common thing? Like, why does someone go home and use Amazon and then they go to work and they're texting or emailing or creating POs? It's like the same human being. Like, why are B2B marketplaces not a thing? And we think it's because just like legacy of how other supply chains operate. And we saw something really exciting in the cannabis space at the same time where you have like demographically pretty young tech first owners, operators, teammates, and the, the whole space is brand new. They're, everyone is effectively a startup or less than, you know, five or six years old. So mm-hmm. what can we do to define this supply chain early as opposed to having to disrupt it later? Um, and then we just start asking questions. Whoever, again, like on me just calling random people, like whoever would meet with us, which I know you do too, whoever meet with us, we take the meeting and just ask them these questions. And then again, you start to see this pattern of the thing that we wanted to do, this B2B marketplace for cannabis products was needed. And that's how, that's what kicked off LeafLink. Interesting. So did you stay true to it? Because I know it's tough whenever you get like emotional about an idea. It's very easy to just kind of like ask the right questions so that you hear problems. Did you guys stay true to the questions you were asking to, to the industry? And it, it really did present itself as like, okay, this is a solution that is really, really needed here. We were kind of fortunate that we found what we wanted to find. We did yeah. have a like 10 questions that we would try to stay on point in each of the meetings that we had to ask these like pretty objective, not like leading questions to see if what they think they need lined up with what we wanted to build. And it's interesting. Okay. So this was an opportunity as well. You guys saw, okay, there's, there's an opportunity in so many industries for B2B type companies, but in the cannabis industry, that's just starting out, that's, you know, tons of changes are happening every day this is where we see a huge opportunity. And then you kind of verified that uh, with some of these conversations. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And then from your past experience of just having an awful dev team, probably scrapping code a ton of times, how did you know that Zach was a legit software engineer? How did you know he was the right kind of person to have as a co-founder on all levels, technical and non-technical? So on the second, part of the question how do you know he was the right person or like how did i know that i mean even like maybe he'd say the same thing there's like an element of luck to that because you can only really know someone when you know someone and we've been at this now for almost four years and it i mean things are things are going well mm-hmm. um but zach was definitely on the first part of the question one of those people that like you and i catch up every you know three or six months well, more than that but like get coffee with someone see what's going on what are you working on what what i'm working on um, and he was just like one of those really intelligent, interesting people that for like two or three years before I'd been catching up with, I actually wanted him to join the Trubly team, but he had his own company that he had just exited that he was transitioning out of. So it didn't line up, but, um, 
that's how that's how it came together right now. Interesting. Okay. So you both had successful exits in, in two different worlds and then met, you met at a conference or something, right? Uh, we actually met through uh, some of the, we actually met through some of our like investors and mentors that we talked about earlier that had worked with Zach on other projects previously. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so there wasn't really like co-founder dating for this company. You guys knew each other long enough where you realized like, okay, we can go all in on this. Yeah, it was like one of those things where I, I, I had a good feeling about it. And so I just did it. Got it. And I would have, and I, and, you know, correct if you can, but fortunately this was like the right decision. Looking yeah. Back yeah, huge. Um, so did you guys create like an MVP? Did you create a small product to, to test out? How did you initially test to see if there was as big of an opportunity as you guys thought? So we, one of the first things we worked on together, aside from just doing the research, was Zach built out this like, you know, wrap bootstrap template kind of looking marketplace platform, mm-hmm. uh, which I could still see it, but it looks nothing like what LeafLink looks like. It's like when you see, you know, the first version of some of these other like larger companies. Right. Uh, just look like crap. But <laughs> Zach could put it together really quickly and it was enough to at least show people um, and, and raise that first million bucks that we raised in the angel round, which was, I mean, just, that was our own money. That was some investor money. And that was just me and Zach, but we didn't have any clients. We, you know, it was very, we're just exploring this space kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Zach was moving to the speed. I was moving. He was interested. He was interested. He was over at eBay. Interestingly enough, like there's a lot of themes now that tell the story, but That's he was so at funny. EBay, um, for about a year and a half before we started the flink. Amazing. So you could use him to kind of spice up your eBay account before he came over. Oh yeah. Get those powers. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> You're like, you got to do one thing to make us real co-founders. Yeah. That's funny. Um, okay, cool. Uh, so you guys tested it out. Well, you didn't, you just built a product and then sold it to, to investors. I guess I want to get into that. Um, you've raised $16 million to date. You're obviously good at it. Um, you've given me advice before whenever Brett and I were raising, I'm sure a lot of listeners, especially, you know, founders that are in the startup world would love to hear your thoughts on just the best ways to, to raise the best ways to raise money, I guess. It's hard to say like, what's the, like what the tricks are. Cause I, I feel like it goes back to what we were talking about earlier on like building relationships and trust. And, um, I, don't understand why people always people complain a lot about raising money because for me it's it's I find it very exciting it's interesting it's taking the the story that everyone on the team there's almost 70 of us now mm-hmm. that we're building every single day and explaining it to a third party person who could either like take a dump all over it or say it's a genius idea but either mm-hmm. way you'll probably learn you probably learn more on the first version actually but I really like that because it's I mean when we raise money you're literally selling a piece of your, you know, baby. So right. if you're proud of it and excited about it and has an amazing story, it should be one you're, you're pumped to tell. Um, and yeah, I think there's this other element of people in like the people investing is literally is putting their money on the line for, you know, what you're doing. And to me, that's like a very, you know, I'm not in the, I'm not like an emotional investor, but it's like a very, it's like a, there's nothing more serious. Like there's no more intense, vote of confidence than to put their name on a check. Um, and then that's like a responsibility that we take on at the same time. And yeah, that's, 
I don't know. So I don't know if there's really any tricks to say other than you know, talk to more people, always be confident about it. And sometimes you know, I can meet with other founders and they just they say all these things and it's so like academic and like all, it's just like, what are you talking about? You know, like, yeah. you know, um, I think the directness is, is value. Like if I, if I have to, if I just get, you get weird feelings when other people talk, which I, I know the things they're saying, like they spend so much time thinking about it and not talking to anyone else about it, right. that they're just like at this other level. And it's like, wow, that, why don't you go be a professor? Because Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. And some things that I know you've done, like you, you keep a book of all potential investors, right. And you've always done this or maybe an Excel document, but I guess one thing for them is to always have a list of potential investors. Um, but then I guess like everything you need to sell, you need to hit the road, you need experience like you're mentioning. Um, and then I think what is different about you than a lot of founders that I see out here in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, which it does get really annoying is that you're like confident, you know, that you're going to be able to scale to the next level. You know how to potentially exit in the future and you see all of this and you know that you're going to do it and you know how to do it. And I think that sometimes maybe other founders don't, and you can feel that as an investor, you know? So I'm not, but I, I mixed into there is I'm not a hundred percent confident of everything you just said. Like we've started meeting with people now and they're like, Oh my God, you guys, like you've made it. This is so great. I'm like, what? I'm glad that you're all sleeping so well tonight because we still have a lot of things to figure out. So I don't, yeah. I definitely would agree that I like have a, you know, I'm confident about um, going through these processes, but a lot of it is like being comfortable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable right. and knowing you don't know. Yeah. That like those phrases that are like too often used, mm -hmm. but it's true. So yeah. if you're not, if you think you have it figured out, you're probably not going to, yeah, people don't want to deal with people like that. And usually people don't have it figured out. Everyone's just like an old baby, pretty much like an old child, you know? And people that try to pretend like they're more than that, it's like, you're taking yourself away. <laughs> okay, so you guys, did you raise money before you started selling it to anybody then, this initial $1 million? Yeah, this was the million. It was just like Ryan and Zach were working on something. I'm in. Um, which was actually like an interesting advantage because like flashback four years, no one was able to raise really any money in the cannabis space at all. Now there's you know so much, but at the time people weren't even investing in the industry or maybe even the concept because we were still figuring that out. It was like Ryan and Zach were working on this thing. Uh, okay. That was the kind of like connection that we had with that first round of investors, but we had the deck and everything. So a part of it was, it was also easier for us because we were coming off of, two previously successful transactions so everyone's like yeah like i'm you know i'll do i'll go again right so of course but then there's people like brett that you know only had met you and and he still went in um yeah. so I, I think it's definitely both but good for all of them and yeah good for you guys to be able to just raise some money off of your names and your past experience mm -hmm. i'd say i'd say one other one other this is actually maybe a trick is don't go to VCs immediately. There's, it's just, that's just a brand of a fund type. Mm -hmm. Like I think angel rounds are best raised by friends and family, family offices, ultra and super high net worth individuals. Like there are a lot of people that can cut checks for a hundred, 250 K, you know, 50 K and you could mm -hmm. stitch together around like a, a nice size round on that to at least right. get enough proof that you could then go to the, those VCs. I think some people say like, I have an idea, I make a deck, 
let me go to all these VCs. Like, I think that's not the right move on the first round. And, that, and the first time, you know, we did that, we did it the way I just said, we didn't go to, you know, venture traditional venture capitalists in that first round. Yeah. That's cool. It makes sense. Um, so now that you had the money, uh, how did you guys start up the operations? How did you put it to scale? How did you, um, test it out, get your first clients? We were living half time in Denver, Colorado. So this is now in 2016. There was a team. There was four people on on the team, um, and Colorado was the only market that really had like a built up, mature legal, compliant market. So uh, we were going out there all the time. There's like we're staying in like Airbnb basements. Zach would be on the couch, or I'd be in, in the bed, and then we'd like in the next trip I'd get the couch, you know, like stuff like that. Right. Um, and I remember the first, uh, order when it came through, I was with the brands. So those are the sell side companies in the marketplace. And one of the other four of us, our, our sales rep at the time was with one of the retailers and we were sitting, she was with them like an hour away. And I, and I had, a, she placed the order and, you know, I was with the sales, like I'm sitting next to the person accepting to make sure it went through. Um, and that was probably like that happened. And then, you know, a few weeks after that, this is now like March, 2016, um, the first order came through and I remember cause we were at a, we work and then like this, like five or six person suite and an order came through and I remember I turned around to Claire, uh, who's on our team and was like, did you just put that order in? And she's like, no, I didn't do it. And then I was like, Zach, did you do that? And we realized none of us had done it. Like, holy crap, someone just placed an order on the marketplace. <laughs> and it was like, we had this disco ball that would go off when orders would happen. But now there's like, you know, almost 2000 orders a day. So it doesn't work anymore. But mm-hmm. that was like, there's some dancing on that one. That was pretty, that was like a cool moment. I think that we were like off to the races. That's amazing. So did you have to do any marketing or anything or just by building the product and talking to people, it just started to get used? We, it's, it's, it's B2B. So we were a lot of in-person meetings nothing super clever around how we like brought it to market other than we were on the phones. We were you know, setting up email. We were setting up meetings via email. We we're going physically to show up because there's a lot of trust issues in the space from black market days. Yeah. Uh, so being there in person, like skin to the name is definitely, was, is definitely very valuable. Um, we had a couple of things like referral programs that were, that were also valuable in tandem, but we've had a pretty traditional like we're not the tech company that says build it and they come. It's like, we're going to build something great and we're going to let everyone know it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's great that there is two of you, you know, out here in this world of the Bay area, uh, a lot of times people like the two technical founders in a pure technical team. And I think you guys are a beautiful example of how um, two people can come together, a couple co-founders and you come in with your experiences and your talents and you make it work um, for everybody. Right. So Dak doesn't have to learn how to cold call people or, um, just do all of the business side of things. He can just stay focused on creating the product. Cause that is yeah. definitely what people say out here. And I agree. It's like, yeah, you can, but there's the need for someone to be building the ship, but somebody needs to be hustling their ass off to make sure that that works no matter what. Yeah. And like, and where are those assumptions even made off of like the perverse thoughts people have after they watch the social network, like you build something, a bunch of engineers and immediately it becomes this enormous thing. Like that's not how, that's not the majority of the use of cases of how it works. Right. Um, I think sales and account management and listening to clients and marketing and engineering are all very, very important teams to support. And no one I think is greater than another. Um, 
And I think to have a successful company nine times out of 10, those all must be accounted for like super early. Yeah, exactly. And were you doing the cold calls early on then? Or did totally. you die? Yeah, yeah, like the, the weirdest thing to me was when the first time a brand was closed and I wasn't involved in it. Right. I was like, is that okay? Like, do, do we, des- do I deserve that? Like, I didn't, I didn't do that deal. <laughs> and, then I, and I realized, and then, you know, we matured past that, but yeah, I was on all those calls. Right. I, I go to the first CRM entries for our first like full clients and stay there all night and do it. It's like, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever has to get done to get to where we're going, like we'll do it. And that's part of, I think the culture here is like execution is, you know, execution and trust are enormous for us. Yeah. And so yeah, from the very beginning, it doesn't matter who's doing what, as long as it gets done, we're all going to the same place. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So what does the rest of 2016 look like for you guys? So 2016 was all about just owning Colorado. So getting up to um, a certain number of, you know, we were sending out investor updates every month, but getting up to a certain penetration of retailers and brands, um, which we hit. And then, um, yeah. And then, and then the next thing was, you know, potentially raising more capital to see, if the product was agnostic enough to fit in a different market. So in our, in our space, we're not one marketplace. Our products are THC infused. So they can't cross state lines. So every yeah. time when, when we're, we're really a collection of these 20 marketplaces, like Colorado is its own, California is its own, Washington, like that. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the seed round was to be about like a multi-state um, group. Yeah. Multi-state growth. Awesome. Okay. So then the goal was by the end of 2016 to have a ton of traction, prove that you could scale it in one market, raise some more money and then scale it to other markets. Yeah. Like if the angel round was about Ryan and Zach have this concept, the seed round was about, does this product work in three in more than just Colorado? And then the A was take it from, you know, three to five States to our goal by the end of this year is to be in 30 markets. Awesome. So end of 2016, you're raising, you run into some trouble there, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that, that raise and the trouble you ran into? Yeah. So we have a lot of, uh, crafty characters in our space. Um, less and less every day. There's a lot of professionals in the industry, which I think is, is where it needs to be. And, you know, a vast majority are, are like that. But when we were raising the seed round, we had like we had four or five term sheets in, ready to go. It was oversubscribed. We were doing a two and a half million dollar round. They were going to close at three, um, and an offer came along to purchase the company. And we definitely spent too much time. And I think them as a buyer took advantage of that, knowing we were getting lower on capital. Uh, and there was like one of those deals where there's always like a new thing, kind of, and put in, put in, put in. Um, and so we ultimately, I remember we walked away, of course, from that deal. How long did uh, this go on for though? How long were they kind of toying with you? I think I was a little tainted by the last deal that I did that we just talked about where it's like, you have this concept, you build it up for like 12 or 18 months. And then I guess someone buys, like someone, you know, makes, makes an offer to, to buy it. Right. Um, and so we probably like probably a few months. I mean, we definitely a few months, uh, that they were jerking us around Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you have to remember too, it was 2016, right? So Hillary had just lost the election. And so the environment was very precarious for this industry, not knowing, 
you know, who was going to come in and if there would even be an industry in a quarter. Right. And so, and so this was the thing we're thinking through. I mean, there was like, for the first like two years of the company, helicopters would fly over and I'd be like, Oh my, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we're not, we're not this company, but you know, you're right. nervous about these things. And, and then, you know, not Hillary wins the election. And, and then we're starting to think, Oh my God, like, what does this mean for the world? And what does it I mean? What does it mean for our company? Um, so it was a weird, it was a weird time. Yeah. Fortunately, we, um, we were able to, we walked away from that deal like a few days before Christmas. I remember, and I think we had like a, maybe a payroll or two left, um, that we were able to, we were able to raise through and, you know, figured it out, which was great. It was an awesome learning experience. It was definitely a very challenging thing that like, now I learned how important it is just like, say no, like just say no quickly, like make it a sit. Like I've always been decisive, but on things like this, you know, you're either in or you're not. And if you're not, that's fine, but we have to move on. Right. Um, and not allow things to carry on. And so what happened Christmas day? Cause I know you, you had to kind of work through the holiday and this is pretty stressful. What did you finally accomplish at that point? Uh, so we, so I basically had to go back. I, I basically, you know, went back to the, the people who I was hit pause on when we explored this deal yeah. and said, Look, we need, you know, we're not doing this deal. There's way more to build here. Uh-huh. Um, Zach and I had a lot of like, we sat down and we made a commitment that this is really, there's so, so much, such a uniqueness to our space and our team and our company and just like this industry and the timing, right? Like you can control a lot of things, but you can't control timing. And I think we have that in our favor. So like, let's go a bit, like, let's see this through truly to what we can make it as this new standard industry standard platform. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had to, you know, so we were going, it was the holidays, so everyone checks out, but I, you know, was, I was full on. And like, this was a good example of like when Brett, you know, came up to bat at an awesome time. And I mean, a few other investors as well, which was great. And then we were, you know, fast forward like a month from the holidays, we closed officially our seed round, which was led by Larry Hippo, which is this like incredible seed investment company in New York. They've invested in like Casper, Warby Parker, like Venmo, all these names we all know. And it was their first investment in the cannabis space. Um, so it was a good learning experience, definitely like a challenging thing. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see the games people play, especially with like found younger founders, mm-hmm. but better, better for it at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. You learn fast, probably faster than a, a lot of others. So 2017 you have, this is the seed round now at this point for LeafLink. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And it was 3 million. 3 million. Got it. So now the, the play is scale. You're going from five employees to probably like 20, 15, 15 to 20. Okay. Um, and so we hired those. So this is like, yeah, Q1, Q2 of 2017, hired those opened up in Washington and Oregon and Nevada in Arizona. Um, and, and yeah, we just started like bringing on some more technical hires as well. So it wasn't just like just Zach and we had, you know, one or two other developers alongside him engineers that were building the platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our goal in 2017, this is when like the numbers are getting pretty clear, but our goal in 2017 was to hit a hundred million dollars in transactions in the marketplace by yeah. the end of the year, which we did. Um, and then we closed like almost like 10 months after we closed the, uh, seed round and we closed our a where we raised another $10 million, uh, from this incredible company called Nostara. They just do marketplace investing out of London. 
Awesome. And, um, and then, yeah, from there it was like, all right, now the team goes up to 40, 50, and we set the goal of opening up in 15 markets and moving half a billion dollars in, in transactions in the marketplace. Right. That was 2018 goal. Wait, and what was that last part? The 2018 goal was to move half a billion in transactions on the marketplace. Amazing. Okay. Let's not fast forward too much into other fun things that you've recently announced, but, um, okay. You're, you're scaling this team. And I remember early on we would chat and with your smaller team, it was tough, right? You're, you were kind of invested in everybody. You were managing everyone. How do you end up going from five to 20 to 40, 50, et cetera, did you have to create new systems internally to manage everybody? And how did you as a pretty hands-on founder start to delegate some of this? We, well, a lot of mistakes. We were each, me, my co-founder and I, and the few team members, everyone was involved in like every interview and there wasn't really a process, but we began building out, uh, like we would, like Zach and I would section off each of the teams we were running and we would, you know, we would do the recruiting for that. Uh, it was, all this was, particularly challenging though, because we had at this time at, that we're talking an office in New York, an office in Denver. We had a few remote uh, sales reps as well on the ground in like Oregon and, and Washington and keeping everyone aligned. We hadn't instituted OKRs or anything like that. It mm-hmm. was definitely something that was challenging. We came up with some of these like meeting concepts, like all hands, like we called these huddle booze report meetings uh, where everyone reports and depending on what time zone you're in, you can have a drink. Um, we were doing them like every two weeks. We do them every month now. Um, but that was always like top of mind. Like, you have to overcompensate on communication just to keep everyone aligned at a company mm. where things are changing so quickly. Right. And it's tough. Like, you know, I still have a small team, mostly remote, and I'm very impatient and I hate bureaucracy, right? But I'm sure as you grow, you need to have this stuff and you need to communicate as much as possible. Yeah. It's, I'm learning. It's like the only way. Yeah. That's huge. And so now you can kind of delegate, you have goals for different teams and your different pods and then everything kind of reports back. Yeah. Um, amazing. Yeah. We have like territorial pods and now we have objectives and key results that obviously all roll up to the company's um, goals, which has been really powerful. Yeah. Okay. So let's go over some numbers and I, I think people, I mean, it was in the intro, but so you're connecting with this B2B product brands, uh, so different cannabis brands, anything that has THC in it, CBD as well, CBD products? If it's a CBD, so we only work with licensed compliant companies. So if one of those, it has, every state has its own licensing structure, which is built into the permissioning system of the, of the platform. Mm-hmm. But if you have a CBD product that sits under a marijuana, the THC cannabis license, then yeah, it could be a leaf link. But there's a lot of like snake oil CBD stuff in the market right now that we obviously, we don't work with that. With that. Yeah, you try to stay away from, okay. So there's a thousand of those brands that brands could have hundreds of or thousands of products themselves. Any, anything with like sugar, fat now. So like anything from baked goods to vape pens, there's like, there's even like cannabis infused jerky, teas, mm-hmm. coffees, like flour traditionally, as you think about like, you know, weed. Yeah. Uh, that's all on the platform. We have over 170,000 SKUs now on LeafLink. Crazy. Through, through 1,000 brands. Yep. Wow. Okay. And then you're pairing them with 3,000 different retailers in 21 U.S. and Canadian territories. 20, 20 yeah. 20, okay. Oh, that was 20. Sue's changed that around. Okay. In a couple of weeks, it'll be more, but yeah. So yeah, so the use case real quick is 
if you're a purchasing manager at a dispensary, typically you would text, email, phone call 30 to 50 brands every week or so to stock your shelves. Now you can go on LeafLink, create a multi-brand cart, as we call it, hit submit, and then those invoices get sent out to all those brands. And then they have SaaS tools, which help them then manage the life cycle of the order internally all the way through to, to delivery. Amazing. And it needs to be different for each state, as you're saying. And I'm sure that that's um, created some complicated uh, software for the team. And it should only get more complicated as things pair together. But fun as well. You know, it, I heard in your interview a week ago or whatever, uh, you were talking about Portland and how they're trying to pass legislation where they can ship over state. But it sounds like because of federal regulations, even if that gets passed, you're still going to have to wait. Um, to start shipping state to state? Yeah, people are coming up with rules in like the post-illegal world, but those rules don't go into action until that happens. Um, but yeah, for each of, the, each, of, each of the markets is growing and making up the rules as they go too. So it's not like the industry makes one like sweeping regulation that affects everything. It's we're tracking now 20 different markets and how the rules are progressing there. And they're, they, they, they're, they're starting to emulate each other, which is good that people are learning from others' mistakes, but there's still a lot of like just keeping the eye on it because it's, it's growing, it's maturing on its own. Right. Okay. And then there was a joint venture announced in March of this year. Uh, you guys announced a joint venture with Canopy Rivers, which I hadn't heard of, but I, I know they're massive. So they're a massive publicly traded cannabis-focused investment platform. And then the JV is called LeafLink Services International. And there's plans to take your current tech and bring it around the world. So basically, um, anywhere other than the United States, this JV now has the ability to reach. Um, so that was announced in March. Where are you guys now? And what are you looking to do in the next 12 months with that? So Canopy Rivers is the venture arm of Canopy Growth, which is the largest producer of cannabis in the world. Um, they are invested in by Constellation brands. Constellation is like a $4 billion investment in Canopy Growth. And so uh, when Rivers reached out to us, we saw this, you know, eventually we were thinking about Canada is fully legal, that there's probably a place for our software up there. Yeah. But this is like the most complimentary potential relationship. Like we have the software, we have the tech. It was built from the industry. Yeah. different in Canada. They are in Canada. They know that market. They have operations in almost a dozen other international markets. Mm. So whenever we go into a new state, we have these launch partners together that they get value from the platform. We obviously get value because their products are on the platform. Uh, we saw the ability to create this type of relationship. Uh, that's right, which which we announced earlier this year. Um, since since we went live with it and announced it, we now have a team of, of, of almost seven people up in Toronto that are expressly focused on growing Canadian market to start. There's a lot of like internationalization adjustments you can make to the platform. Mm. So, it could, so it could work up there. There's concerns around data that we have to also like account for. Um, so that's like the team up there in a lot of ways. It's, it's doing what we did here three and a half years ago, but the platform is, you know, it's built and, you know, all this time and money has been invested. So it's a, it's a cool thing to jump into these markets and say like, here's a software that can create transparency, create community, this network um, from day one. Right. Yeah, it's kind of amazing and it works well for you guys since you've already had to create different products for each market. It very much so works out where now there's different products for each country as a market. 
Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting. Amazing. And then as a CEO though, how do you now manage this? You're just using the same management structure you created and, um, and delegating to, to this foreign team. Over the last 18 months, we've built this awesome executive team. Uh, and we're obviously doing a lot of hiring right now to help us all progress. But yeah, we have, you know, a head of sales and expansion, head of marketing. We'll probably, you know, have a head of um, these international efforts. It's really it needs to all be built around like having accountability throughout the organization. And so, I mean, we've, you know, there are times where each of us had, was, had like 20 or 30 people rolling up to us. But then we realized, like, that obviously, you know, it's not sustainable. Right. And so it's just having great people, I think, right now is, and that's what we're always striving for. Um, yeah. It's only yeah. To do it. Let's get into the people thing then. It was one of the rapid fire questions at the end, but it's interesting. I was talking to Roya about this interview. Roya is my wife. And I was like, you know, as I think more and more about LeafLink, if somebody were to purchase on air parking tomorrow and they were like, Pat, I don't want you to like be involved with the business at all. One of the things that I would possibly do after taking like a nice little trip would be to like find a way to get into LeafLink, like to present to you like a way for me to fit in. Cause it's just, it's so interesting. Right. And you're, you're creating such, I hate to use the word, but disruption, <laughs> but you're, it's not even disruption. You're creating something. Definition from What's the that? beginning definition of the supply chain from the beginning exactly correct yeah and it's it's just so fun for me and it's so interesting to follow this story um that it would definitely be on the top of my list uh cool i mean but like so, so what but i think what you're saying is like we have this is why marketplace businesses are so beautiful like we have liquidity we have buying and selling that's happening and there's so many things that are needed by that so there's obviously there's data reporting that could be valuable there's general sales and expansion there's financial tools that people need. There's logistical things. And then like we bring, we've been bringing people on to lead these efforts that have either done it before or just know more, way more about it than we do. And right. give them the tools and the ability and the support to like absolutely crush that. Um, and I've learned like some things we've launched slower than I would have preferred because we waited longer than we should have to bring in the, that, the big hire that just knows that space better. Right. Um, Someone you're fully confident with. Oh, yeah, or you, you can be as confident, you know, until you don't know until you know, but yeah, that, yeah. that you're majority confident. Got it. Okay. So with all of this being said, what are some key roles uh, LeafLink is currently hiring for? Always hiring engineers, uh, specifically right now, actually, uh, on the West Coast, um, uh, in LA, potentially even San Francisco. Um, and we're also looking for a number of positions for that international office, like we mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of like marketing team hires. And then we're bringing on um, a few people around this, like VP of finance, VP of ops roles, all these things that there's enough of it to do now that it's clearly a full-time position. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like my title is really just the person that does all this stuff because we don't have a specialized person to do it as a full-time job right now. Right. But we're getting to a place with some of these things where it's like, you know, maybe Ryan shouldn't be paying all the bills for the company. Um, <laughs> someone is definitely better at that. Um, right. So like, so as we grow, we're, we're trying to like section things off um, to, to give them people who are, who can be empowered to do them even better. Yeah. And leaflink.com slash careers would be where people go to find the different positions. Yep. Cool. Okay. Fun to get into that. Um, 
and yeah, congrats on all the hiring you guys are doing. Okay. Um, yeah, him something like 20 plus roles right now up on the site. Crazy. So with all the new rules and regulations that are always happening, how do you, do you guys have somebody on your team that's taking care of that as well? That's kind of, is that part of the pods in each state to, to keep in connection with the rules and regulations and make sure that you're managing everything appropriately? We, yeah, we pretty much. I mean, we hear a lot of it from just our clients, like the client experience team is awesome about keeping this closeness to the community members, mm. um, but then becoming resident experts on each of their pods and their like geographic locales is definitely the key. We work with uh, a few external lawyers that have actually drafted up some of the regulations in the states where we operate. And so we get wow. updates from them. And I mean, we have our like corporate counsel, we have lending counsel for this other revenue line working on. We have cannabis council, so it's just a little more complicated. I'm sure eventually we'll, this, will, this will become a, a full-time role here. Right now, it's just like keeping ear to the ground, listening to what the clients are dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the way most people think that cannabis companies are just rolling in cash and they're making so much money. And there's some really onerous tax burdens on these companies. They're not allowed to take advantage of federal tax um, elements that most of their businesses can they can't use banks as freely as others do Mm -hmm. it's like it's like if you're an entrepreneur and you're really a sucker for abuse like you would pick to be in this space because it takes a particularly like persistent and durable dynamic founder to be on like not even i'm not even speaking about us it's like our clients what they do plant touching companies Mm -hmm. What are some other companies that you think uh, the industry could use? Like, where do you see opportunities that no one's really started working on yet? People have been spending a lot of time around uh, distribution and logistics. There's a number of distribution companies that exist. A lot of them are raising pretty significant capital. Uh, If you think about like liquor or pharmaceutical products, they have very large institutionalized logistical, like three, three tier distribution type uh, 3PL structures in our space. It varies, like I said, by state. So right. no one operator that is operating in that is, that's functional in multiple markets. Mm-hmm. And so have a lot of these companies that are, you know, they they have like dozens of truck routes, a handful of warehouses, several hundred employees. And like that, that are coming together so quickly. And so yep. there's definitely opportunities around more, stability for for our clients in that part of the market yeah on the tech side there's a, there's definitely like a number of data plays to be had there's a few great data companies in the space um there's a ton of pos systems like maybe too many uh, yeah. in the industry yeah anything that you would be really happy if it were built it, it would help you guys out it sounds like the logistics side of things might be helpful any yeah, problems yeah. That would be helpful. Uh, it would also be interesting. Um, we're keeping our eye out for like which which order delivery company, which POS system really rises above the rest because I think there's certain relationships we could begin to form that could be really interesting. If you think about the whole supply chain, like we live further back, but there's yeah. this, you know, equally, I don't know if it's equally important, but very important front part that if you can draw connections across that supply chain, you truly have a virtualized industry, like a virtualized supply chain in this industry, which is a right. model for other spaces down the line. Um, so we always keep our eyes up, but there's a lot, there's actually way more on the B2C side companies than on the B2B side at the moment. 
Yeah. And I love the thought about B2B. You're so right. Um, there's just a way to make everything so much more efficient in the world of work um, in so many other industries. So you had a huge announcement last week. I'm excited that you did announce it earlier than you thought you would. What was that? We, we had to, well, we had to cancel this interview to, to do it, yeah. but uh, <laughs> we announced that uh, we're, we announced that we broke a billion dollars in our GMV, which is our gross merchandise values so the transactions in the marketplace run rate, which means that 16% of legal wholesale cannabis is now moving through LeafLink's platform, which is pretty exciting. When you think about a lot of startups that if they could achieve one or 2% of their industry, that's incredible. Yeah. It's part of the uniqueness of what we're, of just everything that's happening here at LeafLink. Um, and so that was one of the goals we're working towards. It's not the goal for the year, but it was definitely a very significant number to hit when you think that two years ago, our goal was to hit, uh, or maybe even less than two years ago, was to hit 100 million. Right. Yeah, it's insane. And 16% is a huge number. Uh, I, we're running out of time, so I want to ask about it because I know it's in uh, Suze's website that she put together, but very interested in exactly. Awesome. First billion dot leaflink.com all spelled out. Yeah, cool. So if you want to hear how they got to a billion dollars, first billion dot leaflink.com. Yeah. All spelled out. Yes, all spelled cool. out. And we can even possibly just link to that. So amazing. Yeah. To, to think that that was your first goal, hundred million, which is still a lot of revenue exchanging hands through your platform. And then to go to a, a billion, I'm sure Zach is busier than ever. Um, <laughs> so yeah. how do you guys make money on your end? We have three core revenue lines. The first one is SaaS tools that we sell at a flat rate. There are certain ways we price the product that have to, in order to maintain our compliant non-cannabis position. Uh, if we charge a flat rate, it's just like a service provider. So we charge a flat SaaS rate. We have ad tools um, that people can begin to use. There's a lot of restrictions around ads that people can make in the space. Uh, and then our third revenue line, which is really beginning to have legs this year, is uh, a payment solution for companies on the platform um, to help them with these B2B transactions so they don't have to shuttle cash around anymore. Interesting. And I'm sure there's so many more solutions that as an entrepreneur and you're seeing the problems that you'd love to come up with, but you have to tame yourself, but like, I mean, gotta stay focused. Totally. Like there's yeah. all these other things that we could be doing and like, we'll get there. But I think doing those things is like a luxury of this, these three being successful. Right. And that's where we, where we're primarily focused. Yeah. Makes sense. And it's too bad. I mean, it, it's tough. Like even the bank thing, like, unless the people have money, how the hell are they going to start off and where are they going to put their money? It's, it's insane. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking all this time in. Um, what's something that you would like to talk about that I didn't ask you about that you think listeners would appreciate? So listeners are like primarily in San Francisco, like non-technical. No, they're, they're all over the U.S. Uh, Hacker Noon's a, a big audience, but it's mostly like New York and California, 50% technical, 50% looking to get into technical. It's kind of the startup world. Mm-hmm. I feel like we went over a lot of like the most exciting things that we're, that we're working on. Um, I'm just excited for more, like as the industry continues to grow, there's going to be I mean, most of the people that are at LeafLink were not in cannabis before. And I think part of our service is, I mean, we do interviews like this. We speak to funds, even ones that aren't allowed to invest in the cannabis space just to educate. 
And I think part of like our duty as a company in the space is to increase access to, you know, what we know to be of medicinal value to patients on the recreational side, our company's growing. And so um, I think it's an industry worth looking at if you're in pretty much any other industry at any other role, because all those positions are available in this space too. And I think part of this flow of professional, skilled, specialized, uh, talented people is what helps our company. It's what helps the industry. It's what helps you know consumers and patients get to where we all know this is going, mm-hmm. uh, which is some form of federal, either them just stepping back completely or legalization right. and um, welcoming those people to the space, respecting the pioneers that were in the space when it was, you know, before there was 10 markets that were, that were legal. Um, there's some like interesting marriage there that I think through that like respect and pushing and education is how the space goes to you know the end goal that we want for it. Awesome. And what's next for you guys? Are there any other crazy goals that you're sharing uh, that you guys have or what's next in general, if you don't want to share the goals? Yeah. Uh, so what's coming next is we are obviously opening up some of these international markets, hitting this goal of 30 markets live by the end of the year, something that we're very focused on. A lot of the other goals are really just, you know, continuing to do more of what we're, we're already doing uh, definitely like a lot of hiring coming on potentially, you know, another capital rounds and not too distant future. Um, and yeah, just continuing to like build tools that empower the community and the users on the platform is like, that's the only thing we care about. Um, mm-hmm. Making sure everyone on our team has the ability to keep doing that is what we you know, gets us the most revved up. Amazing. All right. Rapid fire questions. Uh, do you use cannabis products? Not regularly. No, I'm not a frequent cannabis user. I'm more of a, you know, have a drink kind of guy. Got it. Uh, we already went over the positions you guys are hiring for. I will, say, your- I will, say, I will say my co-founder is more <laughs> like the right. cannabis community. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he's been thinking about it since high school, yeah, sounds exactly. like he may <laughs> yeah. dab it at least. Huh. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite nonfiction book? Or one you recently read and appreciated? I recently read Alibaba World, which is about Jack Ma's founding of Alibaba. But uh, uh, I don't read really fiction. I just kind of read like other like founder books and founding stories, usually about marketplaces too. So Right. <laughs> awesome. And your favorite non-LeafLink hobby? So I've been traveling a lot for work. And it's allowed me to go to a lot of places that I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, potentially gone. And mm. so... I really like spending more time in those places. Like if I go up till a Friday, you know, I'll stay another day. I'm just like walking around exploring and seeing like, there's so many of these new, like one of the, we always used to travel outside the country when I was younger and I, and traveling like inside the country, seeing all the different cultures that exist, like this concept that were like seven nations of the U S like these like cultural elements. Right. So like I really like just like walking around some of these cities and taking it in and, observing so i guess like a form of travel but making the most of the travel we're already doing yeah um very much like i uh have a personal goal to log 150,000 miles this year uh last year i did 104,000 so geez i'm assuming on bike you're talking about no like i'm, I'm counting bikes, oh plane. you're oh you're talking about plane rides okay i yeah, thought I, you were like talking a about bike, a workout I would, goal i would never i would never, <laughs> I would never I would do nothing else i wouldn't sleep <laughs> Okay, I was picturing running, but I was like, that's too insane. I was like, maybe via bike. I do want to bike down to Miami from New York eventually. I think it'd be a cool, like... Crazy. To do. Yeah, yeah we, we need some key man insurance on that one. 
<laughs> maybe after yeah leaflink is done oh shit yeah so i think we might need to disclose that i have a small investment in you and you and me at some point here um for whatever journalist integrity is out mm-hmm. there so that's there Cool. And so Ryan, how can people find you? Where can they find more about the company? What's Suze's website that she built? Uh, Suze's website is firstbillion.leaflink.com. Our core website is leaflink.com. You can go there and you know reach out to us, connect with us. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big social media person. Yeah, you're not really active no. on social media. Who should they yeah, follow? Does Zach, what? is he active? Uh, no. Okay. I mean, I'm well, on, look, watch I mean, TV, yeah. put on CNBC and you'll find Ryan. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you know, social media, I don't know, man. Anyway, it's a whole other conversation, but yeah. Uh, email ryan.smith at leaflink.com is a good place to reach out. If you're interested in applying for any of the jobs that are on the platform, definitely either do that through leaflink.com slash careers or shoot us an email at jobs at leaflink.com. And, uh, you know, looking forward to connecting that way. Yeah. And told them that Tell him that you listen to the podcast and maybe we can get a referral fee. Say, say I know Pat, I know Pat Murray <laughs> and that he reached out to all these people that I didn't even know you're going to do, which is hilarious. Yeah, right. Cool. Well, Ryan, thanks so much, my man. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Pat. That was Ryan Smith. You can find him at leaflink.com, careers for leaflink at leaflink.com slash careers and more about leaflink's path to $1 billion at firstbillion.leaflink.com. You cannot find Ryan Smith on social media. This is Patrick Murray for the Hacker Noon Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com. Thanks. Thanks.